Hey there, do you want to help me out with future episodes? Over on PeteBrownSays.com, there's a link called Submit. Every few weeks, there's a new prompt there, and you can submit short stories of your own in response. There's a button right on the page. You click it, and you can record a reply right there using your computer or your phone, and it gets sent right to me. It's all anonymous, and I'd love to hear your stories. Just head to PeteBrownSays.com and click Submit. Let's get to the show. This is Season 1, Episode 9. I remember back when I first got to graduate school in English back in the early 1990s, and I was just bowled over by this this truth that just hit me like a ton of bricks. And that was that it's really hard to find new and unique or original things to say about literature. I had never really worried about this when I was an undergrad, back when I was just banging out five-page papers like gangbusters and never stopping to look back. But once I got to graduate school and I saw the sheer volume of the ongoing discourse in literature, I was quite literally dumbstruck. But I had a very decent professor for my Henry James seminar, who likely recognized this deer-in-the-headlights look in his first-year graduate students every fall. And he said that if we could identify an argument and reasonably articulate the different positions held within it, and then say which side you agreed with and why, that that was an acceptable paper for a first-year grad student. And I liked that approach, because it was sort of connecting up the dots that were out there and then seeing what kind of picture emerges. I bring this up because today's essay treads into some culturally argumentative waters, which will see me articulating a position that has not been very popular among certain friends, my family, and peers. And I'm not doing this to convince anybody, or to add to the noise and shouting that passes for discourse in America today. Instead, I'm just trying to connect up some dots and waiting to see what picture emerges. Let's get to it. My son is 15 and is browsing around GameStop, playing different demos, checking out new games. Left to his own, he can do this for hours. I'm trying to be a cool dad, to give him some time and space just to poke about the store before we have to head home for dinner. I'm standing in the corner of the store, messing with my phone. I've already checked and rechecked my email and text messages, scrolled through Twitter and Instagram before putting it back in my pocket so I can half-heartedly look through the clearance bin, which seems full of extra-small t-shirts for M-rated video games, used game discs for the less popular systems, and a handful of minor character bobbleheads, by which I mean characters like Putty from Seinfeld. Right, Coco. A chip's all right, high five. Who was clearance priced at two bucks, due to what I assume was the bobblehead company's serious misread of the size of the Putty fanbase. And I pick up another bobblehead. This time it's Pedro, the character from the film Napoleon Dynamite, who runs for class president. Vote for Pedro. Vote for Pedro. And for a weird split second of my life, I think, Pedro, Pedro. all right, I'm getting this. Which is really an odd thought for me to have as a 46-year-old man with no predilection and certainly no need for any bobbleheads in my life. I mean, I like the film, don't get me wrong, but not in such a way that I'd ever bought any merch to punctuate my affection for it. 
I suppose I thought I could have Pedro bobbling his head in my cubicle at work, and I could give it a poke every now and again for luck. That seems like it's worth two bucks, right? Both for Pedro. But then I pause on that mental image of Pedro bobbling his head in my cubicle, and I think of myself, a middle-aged white guy with plenty of direct reports, setting a four-inch bobblehead of the Hispanic Pedro with a pencil-thin mustache, and well, it just feels a bit uncomfortable. And this unique discomfort is a feeling I've learned to pay attention to in my life. I was in high school in the 1980s when Saturday Night Live's Eddie Murphy brought the character of Buckwheat from the Little Rascal shorts of the 30s and 40s back into our cultural idiom with a series of popular skits that saw Buckwheat releasing a solo album. Branding his own line of blue jeans. Sassoon? Mm-mm. But we? Yeah. <laughs> Buckwheat jeans. Okay. And ultimately, being assassinated on live television. Buckwheat is dead. <laughs> the legendary star of The Little Rascals was shot by an unknown assailant upon leaving 30 Rockefeller Plaza tonight. For those of you who haven't had a chance to see the actual footage, let's take a look. As you can see here, Buckwheat is surrounded by some of his admirers. He had many. And right here, the shots. Yes, there they are. The shots are actually ringing out. You can see here his security men run for cover. There they go. It's a tragedy. When I summarize it like this, it doesn't seem like it would be funny. But at the time, it did seem funny. In part, I think, because the skits prompted us to collectively look back at how weird and possibly offensive the Buckwheat character was in those original Little Rascal shorts. As a very quick aside here, I should mention that I, like many of my contemporaries, had heard a rumor that the Little Rascals no longer aired on TV because comedian Bill Cosby bought the rights to them and then refused to let them air, specifically because of the portrayal of Buckwheat. However, Snopes.com tells me that this turns out to be untrue, and it seems kind of odd that it took me 30 years to get straightened out on this point. But back to the 1980s, when I was in high school, and I had somehow acquired a buckwheat watch. I suspect that I bought it for myself at Spencer Gifts at the mall, in the hopes of appearing hip at school. But I also have a nagging suspicion that the watch may have belonged to one of my sisters, and I may have borrowed it. The watch, though, the watch was something else. It wasn't simply a watch with a cartoon picture of buckwheat on its face. Instead, it was a full-color, 3D plastic molding of buckwheat's head, and the face lifted up pop the hood style to reveal a small digital readout underneath. So basically, I went to school one day with the plastic molded head of an African-American children's TV character on my wrist, and I didn't have the slightest sense that this might be a problem. By second period, it was a problem. My history teacher, Mr. G, walked in, took a quick look at it, and asked pointedly, why are you wearing that racist thing on your wrist? I looked down at it. It's not racist, I said. It's buckwheat. Mr. G shook his head slowly from side to side, and that feeling began to form in my stomach, one that was just starting to suspect that just because the thing was on TV or sold at the mall at Spencer Gifts didn't automatically mean that it was all right to wear around, and that there is always a gap between your intention and wearing something and its effect on other people. 
and that your intentions, no matter how innocent they may be, do very little to mitigate the impact on someone else. So I took the watch off, just as I set the Pedro bobblehead back down. Because I believe that if you've got a funny feeling that something, on some level, might be racist, you're probably better off erring on the side of caution. I had the same feeling during the NBA playoffs last year, when the Cleveland Cavaliers were playing the Toronto Raptors. At the time, Toronto had a serviceable but journeyman forward named Luis Scola, who was from Argentina. Here's Scola, the three, and he drills it, and a good sign. Luis Scola knocking down a three. three I believe he plays for the Brooklyn Nets now. So I'm watching this game at a chicken wing place with my friends, and I see Scola, and immediately I think, he's a dead ringer for Apache Chief. All right, buckle up, people. Here we go. One of the most popular cartoons of my 1970s early childhood was The Super Friends, which featured the expected cast of Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman and Robin, and Aquaman, and in later seasons, The Flash, Hawkman, and Green Lantern. It's hard to describe in today's world of entertainment on demand what it was like to see your comic book heroes moving and talking on TV, even if their animated adventures seemed pretty lame. Because, at the time, they chose not to show any of the super friends throwing punches at bad guys. Most of the time, they were busting up meteorites or banishing invaders to alternate dimensions. Pretty standard stuff. And pretty white, too, by the way. The whole crew was white. Now, to their credit, in 1981, Hanna-Barbera, who animated the DC Comics characters, sought to diversify the lineup with some minority superheroes, including Black Vulcan. Yes, he was black, and he could shoot lightning. I know, right? I don't know why they had to include black in his name, but they did. Then there was Samurai, who was Japanese, and he could turn the lower half of his body into like a tornado. And El Dorado, who was of Mexican descent, and he could teleport himself and he would mix Spanish words in with his English. Rapido! And finally, Apache Chief, Apache Chief, who was Native American, as you might guess. And he would say, Enoch Chuck, and then grow into a giant. Wonder Woman, she's in trouble. Enoch Chuck! Calling out the Apache word for big man, Apache Chief instantly becomes a 50-foot giant! Apache Chief wore a loincloth and spoke in what I presume can be called Tonto English. No explanation was ever given for this sudden influx of superhero characters on the show. What's more, none of them had ever appeared in the comic books. They were created by Hanna-Barbera and not DC itself. And shortly after the show ended, they were by and large forgotten, except in the hidden corners of Gen X memories like mine. So I'm watching the basketball game, and it strikes me that Scola and Apache Chief could be the same person. Pull out my phone, and I think about tweeting this out. Maybe even making a side-by-side photo for emphasis. But then, I start to get that feeling. The one that says this joke is wandering off somewhere I don't fully understand. So I checked in with my also-white buddies, and we all concurred that it was best to let this one lie. What's interesting to me about it, however, is that in 1981 the Super Friends were trying to celebrate diversity. I imagine that was a pretty bold step for the franchise to take. It's just in hindsight, we see that the diversity they offered 
was based on every cultural stereotype of each of the new characters. And to the extent that any of the characters on the show had dimensionality, these new additions were paper thin. So here's something else. I myself don't know any Native Americans. I mean, I, I do have a few friends who have told me things like they have 164th Native American blood. But in terms of asking some questions about Apache Chief, I have no idea who I would reach out to. Or even, really, what the question is I'm trying to articulate. I think it is, what is Apache Chief's modern relevance, and is it at all impacted by the original intent of its creators? But when I put it like that, there it is again. Intent versus impact. Or to muck it up a bit, the original intent versus demonstrating respect in the current time and the relationship between those things. That sounds like a real graduate school type question. But for me, as well-intentioned as the Super Friends were in creating Apache Chief, he was a collection of stereotypes. And were I to resurface him in some way in one of today's forums, in this case on Twitter, I think in some way I'd be saying that those stereotypes are okay, just because it was a long time ago and he was created with the best of intentions. And that math doesn't work out for me. Were he created today, Apache Chief would never be portrayed as he is in the original Super Friend. And if my bringing him back up on Twitter somehow implies that he's okay, I'll go ahead and take a pass. Because no matter how much Luis Scola looks like Apache Chief, and I cannot stress again how much this is so, there are plenty of other jokes to be made that don't run the risk of disrespecting an entire culture. And this is why I stopped wearing Chief Wahoo emblazoned gear of my beloved Cleveland Indians more than 20 years ago, a decision I share with some trepidation even now, given that so many of my friends and family members support the tribe with all of their heart and all of their merch. Not one of them, do I believe, dons this gear with the intention of being offensive. But intentions, as I've found, do not mitigate the impact of this choice on Native Americans, plenty of whom have stated clearly their preference to not have their cultural idiom co-opted for the benefit of someone else's sports team. I know, I know, it's more complicated than that, you may say. Plenty of Native Americans take no offense to these logos. Although, and this is just an aside, I'm not so sure about the shirtless white frat bro in a full headdress and face paint whom I've seen different versions of at every Indians game I've been to over the past few years. I mean, you could literally just put a picture of that guy next to cultural misappropriation in the dictionary. See also, white privilege. But trust me, I know it's complicated to love and hate the same thing at the same time. long pause on deciding to pass on making a joke about marriage. Okay, I guess technically telling you about the joke that I was thinking about is more or less tantamount to telling the joke itself, so I guess I just better own that. But the thing is, like marriage, I'm neck deep in it myself. I live the dilemma every day because I love the tribe in ways that are almost holy. When I made my first communion in second grade, My gift from my family was an Indian's jersey and a new ball glove. And I can't count the number of times my dad and I sat in abandoned right field seats in cavernous old municipal stadium watching some truly awful teams in the late 1970s and early 1980s. 
For the Cleveland Indians, this may not be the year for contention, but it looks like the tribe is now staging its best show in some time. As soon as Dave Garcia was named the team's 15th manager in 24 years, obvious signs of improvement could be seen by all Cleveland fans who now view encouraging signs of future pennant contention. Fans know the Indians are 19 games out, but they also know that they're playing a respectable 500 baseball. And I'm almost ashamed to admit it, but when I was in the Peace Corps in the 1990s, I brought with me at least a dozen Chief Wahoo baseball caps and gave them out as gifts. This was well before my logic had arrived at its current position, obviously. But should the Indians ever win the World Series? And good God, we've been so close. But should we ever win it all in my lifetime? I guarantee you, I will be broken down in tears. Blubbering like an idiot. So I find myself trying to convince myself that I can love the team, but not the mascot. I mean, I hear Christians saying, love the sinner, hate the sin all the time, right? But does the same logic apply? Does the fact that I wear a simple Block C hat instead of the Chief Wahoo hat really represent the position I support? Can I have it both ways and still be okay? The answer is probably not, because it's the same team that gets my money, whether or not it's been exchanged for something emblazoned with a red letter C, or emblazoned with an awful Native American caricature. And even as I try to write about this, and writing is a process that has always helped me clarify my thoughts, I just find myself repeating justification after justification, layering on complexity where it doesn't belong, as if one perfect thought might magically emerge that makes everything okay. I know I've made a bit of a trade-off here, a deal with the devil, if you will, and it's made the ground beneath me a bit unsure. And before we go, I should also note that the Indians had a player who was believed to be the first Native American ball player in Louis Sokalexis, and it was because of him that the team's nickname emerged. Plus, as you'll hear all around and about the 216, everybody is doing it, the whole town. I mean, how can something be wrong if everybody's doing it? And those things may be true for some people. They may be enough to swing the math their way. But as for me, I'm going to err on the side of caution. I'm learning to listen to that funny feeling. And when I do that, those arguments just sound more and more like someone trying hard to convince themselves of something that deep down they know isn't true. Where I am now is, it comes down to this. If you're choosing to wear Native American mascots and gear, in making that choice, what you are saying is that your need to cheer for your team in this very specific way is more important to you than your need to be respectful of a culture that prefers not to be characterized, as in made into an actual character named Chief Wahoo, and prefers not to have their cultural identity taken from them and emblazoned on hats and shirts to the benefit of a dominative culture that's insisting that this is all A-OK. And when I do that math, Chief Wahoo loses out every time. Your intent in donning his garb does not mitigate the impact it has in our world. Whether you want to admit it or not, you are choosing to do something 
that another culture of your fellow human beings finds pretty disrespectful and crummy. And that's a lousy thing to do. So I wish, I wish, I wish, here's what I wish. I wish the team would retire their name and their mascot. I do. I wish they'd donate these things, their gear and their signage and their IP. Donate those to Cleveland's various museums of local history. Places where they can be understood in the proper context. I wish they'd erect a statue of Louis Sokalexis outside the ballpark and note on the plaque his place in the team's history and how the team was once named because of him. And I wish that Cleveland, the progressive city that I grew up in, the progressive city that I believe it to be, would embrace this change, would go all in on selecting a new team name and a new identity, and would be one of the very first professional-level teams to say, hey, this was our team name for a 100 years, but times have changed, and it's time to move on to something new. And if it were up to me, I'd leave the renaming of the team to all of the second graders in Cleveland area schools, the seven and eight-year-olds, which is how old I was when I made my first communion. Stepping that day into the light of a greater faith, a faith born of dust and leather and the crack of the bat, a home team to root for, the promise of summer, and beautiful Saturday afternoons with just enough time to play too. So maybe it is a few pretty giant steps from the Buckwheat Watch to the Pedro Bobblehead to Luis Scola to Apache Chief to Chief Wahoo. But when you connect dot to dot to dot, sometimes the most unusual pictures emerge. And it is in these pictures that we may learn something about ourselves in all of our complicated glory. Now let's play ball. I hope you like that one. Even as I sit here now, I'm feeling like I'm hearing all my high school friends unfriend me on Facebook or throw shade my way on Twitter. And the truth is, I originally planned this episode to be in the first part of the season. But the thing is, the Indians were in the playoffs and I was worried I was worried that I might jinx it. So I bumped it back all the way to episode 9, the second to last episode. Next week is episode 10, the last episode of season 1. If you haven't done so yet, you can head over to PeteBrownSays.com and click Submit and share one of your crazy teacher stories with me, and hopefully I can work it into episode 10. And I would say the prospect of a bonus 11th episode coming in right before Christmas seems pretty good right now. I've been on a bit of a roll with my writing lately, and as every good baseball fan knows, you never mess with a streak. Okay, everybody, hope you're all doing great. If you like the show, remember to tell a friend or two about them. And as always, good times, everybody. Good times. Pete Brown Says is the property of Blue Monkey Communications and is a work of creative nonfiction audio written and produced by me, Pete Brown. This show is written to the very best of my memory. Some music in the show comes from Brian Hake and Kevin Davison. 
and the closing song, I'm Not Myself, is by their band, Delicious. Other audio may have been sourced from the websites audionautics.com, incompetech.com, the YouTube Free Music Library, freesound.org, and podcastmusic.com. Most pieces are licensed under Creative Commons. Please see the show notes at PeteBrownSays.com for complete attribution. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. And as always, thanks for your time listening today. Good times, everyone. I always thought I would be good at being a major league pitcher, like a starting pitcher for the Cleveland Indians, because up until recently, you didn't have to be good to be their best pitcher. And I figured if someone could just show me how to throw the junk balls, I could junk ball the shit out of people because I don't have much strength to blow a Nolan Ryan 101 mile an hour pitch by him. So, yeah. Yeah.